Well, come with me, if you will, into the desert of Sinai. With thousands of apprehensive but joyful fellow Israelites, we've left Egypt, that terrible place of slavery and ethnic discrimination and misery and brutality, and God has rescued us. We've walked right through the heart of the sea. We've watched in terrified amazement as Yahweh, our own God, held back the sea on either side to let us pass on dry land. We've experienced that awesome, terrifying spectacle at Mount Sinai with God himself somewhere in the midst of the cloud and the thunder and the trumpets, power and danger, that mountain that no one could touch. We've watched stunned and thankful as he sent food down from the sky to keep us alive and fresh water for us to drink in the desert. Thousands of us in the middle of a rocky, sun-baked wilderness. We've been given meticulous guidelines about the true, proper worship of God, our rescuer, and how to please him, how to survive and even thrive as sinful people in his holy presence. And now, for the last week, seven days, Moses' brother Aaron and his four sons have been preparing themselves and having ordination services and rituals as priests of Israel. So many precise instructions and such immaculate attention to detail. It's been a riveting week, visually exciting rituals. The boys, the four boys getting ready to begin their ministry. Spectacular, colourful clothing. The noises of animals being prepared for slaughter, for sacrificing in the newly built tabernacle. And the tabernacle having its finishing touches put on. And the pots and tools and altar being cleaned and polished. We're on the threshold of a brilliant new era the first in a great line of priests for our people. But more than that, we're all keyed up with this tantalising promise that you just heard. Today, God will appear to you. The holy God of Israel. What an expectation. Can it be true? Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron and his his four sons, have been getting ready in a grand way. Mrs. Aaron would have been working so hard to have everything perfect for her husband and four sons. A good breakfast, newly ironed clothes. Moses gave Aaron and his nephews a good wash. Then he helped Aaron into his special priestly gear. Then the same process for his four sons. Anointing oil poured over the altar, a sparkling new tabernacle and everything in it. Oil poured over Aaron's head, oil poured over the four young men and their clothes. Then the sacrificial slaughtering, again with Moses officiating. First a bull, followed by two rams. So much blood, so much bellowing and bleating from distraught animals as their throats were cut and their warm, bright blood gushed out across the yellow sand of the desert. Blood. And noise, people shouting, dust, animal excrement, flies. And the whole assembly of Israel, you'll notice in chapter 8, verse 3, the whole of Israel had to be there as witnesses. A public act, so everyone from the youngest Israelite to the oldest would see and know their priests were ready for the job because it was their priests who would mediate a safe approach 
for Israel before their holy God. Sinful people coming into the presence of a holy, sinless God. Protection from the danger of a holy God. Sure, not not protection from biohazards. There's no disposable gloves, there's no PPE, there are no face shields here, just blood. They all watched as Moses dipped his fingers into the blood of the animals and smeared it on Aaron's right earlobe and then on his right thumb and then his right big toe, this symbol that the whole priest was cleaned by blood from top to bottom. They were his, the priests, to be used just as he had prescribed. And throughout this ceremony, obedience, obedience to God's command was crucial. Everything Moses and the priests did had to be done exactly according to God's instructions. Moses knew who he was dealing with, the Holy One, whom he dared not disobey. Seven times in chapter 8 alone, we read, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded him. Because complete obedience before a holy God is non-negotiable. Obedience is crucial. And so came the first day on the job in chapter 9. It was the eighth day, in verse 1, you'll see, of chapter 9, a new beginning for Israel. Seven days preparation, a bit like the creation. And then an eighth day, when it all started. Moses summoned the, summoned the Aaron priestly family and the elders of Israel, and he reminded them of the sacrifices that had to be offered for atone, to atone for the priest's own sin, as well as the sin of the people. This was to be a momentous event. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9. Today, the Lord will appear to you. The holy God who created the world, the universe. And verse 6, addressed to the entire assembly of the Israelites who had to stand outside the tent of the meeting, appear to you, to the whole people. The presence of greatness. Have you been in the presence of greatness? When I was 10, I lined up for many hours just to see the governor of New South Wales, the much-loved Roden Cutler, VC, walk up the path. He had come to the centenary of our church and we all formed a a guard of honour. It sticks in my mind because I I stood next to my friend David Ferguson who was brandishing his pet cockatoo on his arm. And when the famous man finally, finally loped past us on his wooden leg, the cockatoo screeched out, Dirty old man. I still can't fathom where he learnt that phrase. My friend David froze. I thought it was a marvellous moment. (laughs) But people line up or camp out for hours, sometimes even days, don't they, to get a glimpse of greatness. They do it for fireworks every year in Sydney Harbour, New Year's Eve. So how much more this? The glory of the Lord Almighty, creator of the whole universe, was to appear before the people. Celebrities and fireworks pale into pathetic insignificance compared to this. And once again, Moses followed God's instructions to a T. That's what you do when you're in the presence of greatness. Did you see everybody doing it last night at the coronation? 
They'd been ordained, they'd begun their ministry, and then the moment of truth arrived. Chapter 9, verse 23. They went into the tent of meeting, and then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar, the best of the offerings, the fat bits that all had to be given to God. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. They knew without a shadow of doubt that God was there amongst them as he promised. What a moment, what a spectacle, what a privilege to have been there. What a first day on the job for Aaron and his boys. doesn't get much better than that. The mighty God of the universe showing his glory to the people. It's astounding. It's huge. At the end of Exodus, when God's glory finally filled the tabernacle, nobody could enter it. Not even Moses. But now, through God's gracious provision and instructions about priests and sacrifices, Moses and Aaron enter the tent and come out alive and unscathed. Obedience is crucial. And the end of Leviticus 9 is a pinnacle among high points, isn't it? But the day that started so well, so auspiciously, so wondrously, soon had tragedy and danger written all over it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Two precious sons. One moment Israel shouting for joy. The next, terrified, stunned silence. Two sons barbecued in all their finery in front of the people. Proud father, shattered, bewildered, speechless. Why? How do you think the boy's mother felt? The boy's mother felt about about what had happened. Where Moses had done precisely as the Lord commanded, Nadab and Abihu acted contrary to his demand. In their senses, their, their flat offering pans, they offered unauthorized fire. What? Unauthorized. What is it? What a, what a difference an adjective can make. Beware of adjectives. Mark Twain hated and distrusted adjectives. He said, if you catch an adjective, kill it. Some adjectives lose their right to exist through ridiculous copying and overuse, don't they? Unprecedented. Awesome. Incredible. Perfect. I I pay a bill at a shop, and the the shop assistant says, awesome. Must be a dull day for the shop assistant. (laughs) And other adjectives in, in the greasy hands of marketers have become pretentious nonsense, haven't they? Garden fresh vegetables. What vegetable doesn't come from a garden? They're always fresh when you pick them. Himalayan rock salt. Good grief. Southern Ocean sea salt. Salt. Western Australian truffle. Steel-cut rolled oats. What does it matter what kind of metal is used to cut up each little oat? But this adjective is just mysterious, unauthorised, strange, foreign. It's the same, the same meanings that the word has. There's something wrong 
but we're not told any detail. Did they get their coals from the wrong source? Not from the altar of burnt offering, which God himself had set alight in chapter 9? Had they not consulted their father Aaron? Did they use the wrong ingredients when they mixed the incense? Were they intoxicated? Was that what prompts God's striking prohibition in the next chapter? Was it because the law only ever mentioned the high priest himself placing incense in a pan of coals? Or was pride involved, perhaps? Were they perhaps trying to repeat the momentous, spectacular event that had just occurred in chapter 9? Fire coming out from the presence of the Lord. Did they want an encore of the glory of the Lord? Some, a bit of a stunt, some more fireworks? Were they lured by the sensational? Did, they, did witnessing the glory and presence of the Lord become, in their minds, a spectacular afternoon's entertainment? They want to do it again. God judged them without mercy and without delay. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, as we read this today, we're not to play with the Lord our God. He's not there for our convenience or our entertainment. He's not a performing pet who does tricks at our command. Less than a year ago, a church closed in the, in the next suburb from us. It had a big sign out the front, Eastwood. You might have seen it. Miracle Wednesdays, starting at 7.30pm. Come and receive your miracle. Hey, come and see the amazing things that God will do. Come and get yours. That's not to say God doesn't do miracles. He does. But not at our bidding. Not when we organise them. Have we risked creating a picture of God as so safe that we can just wander in into his presence any way we like. The Lord's our power. Do we sometimes think of coming to church as entertainment with the sermon or the songs as part of the show? Are we tempted to dissect the sermon and give the preacher a mark out of ten, like an Olympic synchronised swimming judge or something? <laughs> are, we, are we first and foremost serving the holy God and his people, or are we looking for stunts and novelty and good music and a feel-good experience, a bit of fireworks. Well, perhaps the vagueness of that unauthorised fire makes it even more important to take the warning to heart. Obedience is crucial. Take extreme care when approaching God's presence. And Aaron, you see, in chapter 10, verse 3, was speechless. Without a perfect mediator... God's holiness is lethal. Look at this mess. Tragic, awful. Half of his male children gone in a flash of fire. The family's future rocked to its core. A rich pedigree, exhausting preparation, and now what a catastrophe. All those years, all that love. Aaron and his wife raising the four boys year after year after year, providing for them, teaching them the things of the Lord. And their ordination lasted longer than their ministries. Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. To not do as the Lord commanded, in ghastly contrast to Moses doing everything the Lord commanded, 
though they knew the command about the altar, do not offer on this altar any unauthorised incense. But they shrugged off the warning. They'd become indifferent to the holiness of God. What makes, what makes them do that? What makes you do what you know displeases God? Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. They'd missed the point of who they were worshipping. They didn't honour the Lord at all. They didn't honour him because they didn't understand his holiness. Stop, Nadab. Stop, Abihu. Stop it. Stop, Anthony. Stop whoever you are. Think about it. Will this please my holy God? We've got a thousand decisions to make every day, don't we? Will this please my holy God? Think about it. What these priests really needed was a priest. Someone to stand between them and God. If we don't take seriously the holiness of God, then we won't be fussed about his specific commands. Imagine if, if you will, imagine if these two, Nadab and Abihu, had gone on to serve as priests. Uh, and they're on duty one day in the tabernacle when Ben Goldstein and Joseph Isaacson, two average Israelites, roll in and they, and they say, oh, sorry chaps, uh, we forgot momentarily and we had a bit of bacon on toast for breakfast this morning. It's not a big deal, is it? Can we still come in? And Nadab and Abihu reply, well, not ideal, but look, never mind about that law in Leviticus 11 verse 7. Don't eat pig meat, it's unclean. Don't worry, no problem on this occasion. Can you come. Or a few minutes later, when Rachel and Solomon Cohen arrive at the tabernacle. Oh, sorry, we're late. We were reversing the camel out of the tent to come when we ran over the cat and we killed it. And we had to bury it. Look, we know Leviticus 11.39 says that touching a dead animal makes us unclean. But God's not really going to fret about that, is he? We could hardly leave the cat in front of the tent. And Nadab and Abihu reply, no worries, guys, come in. The Lord's got bigger things to worry about than little details like that. We understand. Of course you have to bury your cat. I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. If, if we don't understand God's holiness, then we won't be bothered about sin. I will be proved holy. Be holy, he says to the people, because I am holy. Are you listening to God? Are you obeying? Are you living in ways that please the holy God? What a sorry end to a day that started out with such promise. And the final resting place of the priests who've just been burnt up says it all, doesn't it? Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 10, as Moses summons some more blokes from the family who are not priests, come and pick up the remains of your cousins, chard, tunics and all, and carry them away from the sanctuary outside the camp. You see, they've become redundant in God's service because they failed to understand his holiness the priesthood would continue under God's mercy. In verse 15, Moses explained that God would still provide sacrificial meat for Aaron and his children. Even after disobedience and failure, there will be mercy and reinstatement of the priesthood because God's people need priests. We haven't got beyond needing a priest. To a holy God who can't look on sin, there are no small sins. 
we, we, recall, we recoil at the thought of incineration for what seems such a trivial sin. And it seems Nadab and Abihu's hearts had led them to think that their disobedience was trivial. Well, God's people have a sad history of small sins that cost so much more than they expect, don't they? Eating a piece of forbidden fruit? Looking back at a wicked city that God was destroying? Hitting a rock in anger instead of speaking to the rock to bring water out? Keeping a few useful sheep and cattle instead of destroying the whole Amalekite package? Touching God's holy ark to stop it overbalancing? Looking at a woman with lustful thoughts? Lying about withholding some of your real estate revenue? Small things, yeah. But without holiness, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, no one will see the Lord. So, obedience. When we see that frustrating, infuriating person approaching us who doesn't deserve our kindness and our compassion and who we want to avoid, or when a bit of a lack of enthusiasm and weariness in serving Christ comes as we grow older. Or some hardness of heart towards our Christian brothers and sisters who need our help and our resources. Or when we sit down at our laptops or our phones, ready to open the internet, which will offer us any image we could wish for. Or when we're consumed by the desire to have more or to venture into the luxury we feel we have the right to. Or when it feels like God's commands about sexual purity or being committed to the truth and not telling lies are just unrealistically hard. Then let's remind ourselves and each other of the reality that God is holy and obedience is crucial. That's not to say that all sins are of the same severity. Some are worse than others and have greater consequences. But God's holy and all sin is serious. Sin only seems trivial when God's holiness is not taken seriously. And so I need to ask you, as I need to ask myself, are there sins that you and that I have categorised as small, trivial, excusable, sins we've grown comfortable tolerating? Because life's not easy as a Christian, is it? It couldn't be that serious, could it? Nadab and Abihu have a bitter lesson to teach us. Don't assume God's withholding his consuming fire because he doesn't care about our sin. Obedience is crucial and his kindness should lead us to repentance. These are priests, chosen, prepared, ordained, starting their duties, but they needed a priest. Don't make the mistake of thinking we don't need a priest. We do need a priest to stand between us and our holy God because it's unsafe to protect us from being consumed. Did you notice that word and that sentence? Precisely the same in chapter 9, verse 24. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering on the altar. And then chapter 10, verse 2. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Things have changed. We are priests, the New Testament makes clear. But we need a priest. We need a better priest 
who truly understands the distinction between the holy and the unclean and always maintains holiness before God. Anton won't do it for us. Tom won't do it for us. Lee won't do it for us. We need a priest who doesn't minimise or rationalise sin. We need a priest who doesn't make up his own rules for worship. We need a priest who doesn't reshape God's commands to his liking or for his benefit. We need a priest who resists even the smallest sin. We need a priest who, as a priest, went outside the camp to be consumed for sins, but not his sins, our sins. Fire consumed them. They died before the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 29, did you hear the verse? Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. One of the extraordinary things about being, about having, being a Christian is having the spirit of Christ living in us. So we're living every minute of every day in the presence of the Holy God. Do you think about that? When you wake up, think to yourself, I'm living in the presence of the Holy God who sees my heart and my mind. It's, it's terrifying, isn't it? We deserve to be consumed, but remember God's grace. He knows us. He has provided the better perfect priest who was one of us and knew what it was to struggle with being human. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, Hebrews says, in order that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and make atonement for the sins of his people. Jesus is our priest. There is now no condemnation for those who trust him. Do you remember Mourner's little um, all-in lesson in church last Sunday? She quoted from C.S. Lewis. Is Aslan a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Can you imagine what Aaron would have said when you tried to explain him that, to him that you could now, you could now enter the Holy of Holies, into God's presence by yourself at any time you wished, without offering endless sacrifices, without washing yourself meticulously and getting dressed in special clothes, without asking permission even. And women and Gentiles could do it too without risking punishment or death. Can you imagine trying to explain to Aaron with a shocked expression on his face why you didn't do it more often? Why you didn't come into God's presence more often? 
Nadab and Abihu were priests, but they needed a priest. We're priests, but we need a priest too. And in his mercy, God has given us one, a perfect one, Jesus. Shall we pray together? Our Lord God, who is holy and who is not safe and who lives in unapproachable light, as we come to you, we ask for forgiveness for the ways we have domesticated you and underestimated you, the Lord God of the whole universe. We ask for your forgiveness when we've sat loose with your commands, not taken sin seriously, not taken you seriously, and your demand for us to be holy as you are holy. And we thank you for our great priest, our Lord Jesus, who went outside the camp to be consumed for us. May we trust him. Amen. Thanks so much for that sermon, Anthony. What other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? Only a holy God. We're going to sing about that now in our next song. Only a holy God.